If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Today's sermon, judge that you be not judged. So, funny thing happened at the Winter Olympics back in year 2002 in Salt Lake City in the United States in the pairs figure skating event. The Russian pair, Elena Berejnaya and Anton Sikharolitsa won the short program, but they were only a hair ahead of the Canadian pair, Jamie Saleh and David Peltier. But then in the free skate, the Russians made an obvious mistake, while the Canadian pair just skated absolutely flawlessly. And as the event ended, the sportscasters from the American Network, NBC Sports, proclaimed that the Canadians had obviously won. So did the CBC commentators. And they were outraged moments later when the judges awarded the gold to the Russians. And the Canadians were relegated to silver. It's not the first time Canada got shafted at the Olympics. Probably won't be the last time either. But this time, this time it was different. Sure, the Canadian media griped about it, but who cares? This time, this time the American media wouldn't let go of it either. NBC continued to keep the story front and center in their coverage. ABC's Good Morning America and USA Today immediately suspected that there had been cheating. And suspicion fell on one of the judges, a certain Marie-Rene Lagunia from France. And when she was confronted by an ISU official, she actually broke down in tears about possible point trading between the judges. And she admitted that the president of the French Olympic Federation had put pressure on her to give the goal to the Russian figure skating team in exchange for points being awarded to the French ice dancing team in a different event. Now, later she denied that she had said this, but eyewitnesses had seen it. Well, in light of this admission, Canadians got upgraded to gold, although the Russians got to keep theirs as well. But it only happened because the U.S. media kicked up a fuss. Had they not done that, the cheaters would have gotten away with it. So you see the problem when judges judge unjustly. But judging at all outside of sporting events has fallen on hard times. The universal motto in our society for quite a while has been, don't judge me. And the greatest virtue became, I'm not judging you. And it goes along with, don't judge me. I'm not judging you. That's the required attitude to fit it. I'm not judging you. Now, if you're a Christian, of course, you can be extra pious about that. I'm not the judge. You know, God didn't tell me to go around judging anybody. You could even say, 
I'm not judging you. I'm praying for you, right? Because Christians aren't supposed to judge, right? The Bible says so, right? It's right there in our reading this morning, Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. This is one of the best known lines in the Bible, isn't it? Judge not that you be not judged, period, end of story. That settles it. No? No. Because this is not all the Bible has to say about judging. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says this, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The same Jesus said this. And you can see, I, I put the Greek there for you, so you can see it's exactly the same. Me krenete, me krenete. And then he says, goes on to say, krenete, judge. So here you're not just allowed to judge. You're commanded to judge. How do we reconcile this? Well, the issue at the heart of this is how we are to judge. Jesus says here we are not to judge according to appearance, but with righteous judgment. In other words, according to the correct standard. And there's actually no contradiction then between these two passages. As we saw in another sermon some time ago, the key to understanding what the Bible says is proper exegesis. And one key element there is looking at context, 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 where it is in the text, the location. Let's look at the context of that famous line, judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, really, the, the mekrenta is probably, should be translated this way, stop judging. Stop judging that you will not be judged. Now, as you read through the five verses, you see the problem here is not with judging per se. The problem is judging with hypocrisy, judging people for relatively minor things while you're committing much worse things for yourself. You're judging him for the speck in his eye. And look at that. You've got a plank in your own eye. But then look at what he says at the end of that. instructs you to clean up your act, remove that plank from your eye. And once you do that, then you can judge. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So he is telling you to stop judging as long as you're a hypocrite. Clean up your own act. And then after that, you can indeed judge. That's why he says right there in John 7, 24, judge with righteous judgment. That's why there's no contradiction here. In fact, they, the two passages jive perfectly. Because they're both concerned with how to judge. So when we get past that widespread error that we're not to judge at all, we will notice as we read that we are commanded to judge repeatedly, but in the right way. So let's explore when and how Christians are to judge. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Paul writes this, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, anyone who claims to be Christian, not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortion, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. What's very clear here, it's not our job to judge unbelievers. God will take care of that. But God will take care of that. God will judge them. No question about it. So I'm not judging you can add the fact that God is. There's no question about the fact that such things will receive the wrath of God. God has already judged these things. It says in Ephesians 5, 3 to 7, for example, this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And again, in Colossians 3, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. No, that's not our judgment. This is not us judging the people outside. This is the judgment that God has said is coming. He has judged them, and we can't pretend that these kind of things are okay. And while, so while we do not judge those who are outside, we do have the right and the duty to warn them of God's coming judgment. Colossians 1.27, him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. And again, Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he said the message then was repent. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So, yes, certainly we have the right and the duty to warn people of God's judgment. We're not preaching morality to the world. We're not taking unbelievers and say, oh, you know what? You should stop doing this, this act of evil. You should stop fornicating, whatever, because what good would it do? If, if they stop fornicating while well, you have somebody who's a little more pure in hell. Our job is to preach Christ, not to preach morality. But we do need to warn why the wrath of God is coming. That's toward unbelievers. But when it comes to judgment, our primary role, and yes, it's a responsibility, it's not optional, is to judge the fellow Christians in the church. And now it's done, it should be done properly, organized fashion. It's what's called church discipline. There's a way to do it. There's a proper authority to do it. And we can't leave off to do this because issues do come up. It's those named a brother, those who are Christian or at least claim to be Christian. Issues like these do come up in the church, issues that have to be dealt with, lifestyle issues, for example. Here in 2 Thessalonians, withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. 
and not according to the tradition which they received from us. They go through this. They, he says, when we were with you, right? We were disorderly. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't live off of you. You know, we could have you know, as preachers of the gospel, but we didn't. We didn't want to be a burden on you. We wanted to set you an example. And in verse 10, even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. The idea of people living on dole, people being supported who refuse to work, that's not biblical. We hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So these kind of lifestyle issues do need to be addressed. And Paul addressed them. He wasn't afraid of, of being accused of, hey, you're judging me. Because, yeah, you're a Christian, then, yeah, you will be judged for things you shouldn't be doing. Now, the purpose is, he says, command and exhort that they work in quietness, eat their own bread. So it's not to attack them. It is to get them to do the right thing. So the lifestyle issues, they're doctrinal issues. There are people who will be in church who will teach false doctrine. And he says, I urge you to note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine. And then again in Titus 1, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So doctrinal issues are an important thing that need to be judged because people's spiritual Welfare is dependent on having sound, good, proper doctrine to follow. And then, yes, of course, there's sexual morality that needs to be judged. It's a very serious issue. And the Corinthian church says there's sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. And you're puffed up. And if not, rather more that he was done this deed may be taken away from among you. How many churches have we seen where this all can rampant immorality going on there. And the church leaders don't do anything about it. They'd rather talk about you know, what a wonderful church we are. And, and as the Bible says, that's an extremely dangerous way to go. We can't do that. We have to deal with that. Paul follows up saying, I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit. I've already judged as, I, as though I were present. Him was so done as to Paul's certainly judging. We have to judge within the church. Otherwise, a little bit of immorality is just going to keep spreading and spreading and spreading until it leavens the whole lump. But in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul goes on to urge us to judge among each other when we have disputes, when we have problems. We are qualified to do that. Why go to secular courts to settle these issues? He says that's already a failure. You should be able to do it. If the saints will judge the world, if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? As I say, if any of you having a matter against them, you don't go to a law, secular law court before the unrighteous. Go to the church. Let the fellow believers settle it. And Paul is quite shocked that this isn't happening. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. He says that's an absolute failure. And it happens because we, the church, don't fulfill this role of judging when this one brother has a matter against another, because we think we're not supposed to judge. And yet the Bible's telling us here flat out, if we're not judging, that's a failure. Now, what happens then when we don't do it? What happens when we fail to carry out that duty? 
Paul addresses one particular example of it in uh, the matter of the Lord's Supper. Same letter, chapter 11. I'm talking about eating and drinking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, which is a euphemism for dead. There's some serious bad stuff going on in the Corinthian church. They refused to judge because, hey, we're not supposed to judge. As a result, God had to crack down on them. There are people who were disciplined, physically weak and ill, and some even died. But here's, here's where the main point that you really, really need to know what I've highlighted and read there. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Interestingly, it's, it's almost the, the opposite of, of what we think from Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged. And here it's saying judge that you be not judged. Judge each other in the biblical prescribed manner, or God will have to do it. And you're not going to like that. So what we've seen is that what the Bible's teaching is actually the opposite of what we've been led to think. The principle holds not just for the Lord's Supper, but I think across the board, if we would police our own act, if the church would deal with sins that arise in the midst, if the church would deal with false teachings that rear their ugly heads, that'd be great. But if we don't, God will have to do it for us, and that will not be pleasant for us. So I suggest that we should do it when it comes up. And how? How do we do it? Well, many Christians think that this here is the paradigm in Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, I have nothing more to do with him. Excommunication, put him out of the church, is really the strongest sanction that we have. That's not like the Roman Catholic idea where we can cut people off from salvation. We can't do that, and we wouldn't want to. Is this the right way to deal with disciplinary issues in the church? I mean, Jesus said it. We can't argue against it. Do you settle it in private first? And then two or three witnesses who might say, hey, actually, you're the one who's wrong. And then the church becomes the court of last appeal. Well, we have to be careful about that because this is in situations of a personal offense, one against the other. Your brother sins against you. He does something wrong to you. Then indeed, you go and tell them and say, look, you, you did this. Let's, let's make it right. And if, if he listens to you, great. Problem solved. No need to go further. If not, then you take a couple more people with you, witnesses, and say, yeah, you did this. Or who might say, no, you know, he was right, you're wrong. Settle the matter that way. If that doesn't work, then you take it to the church. But this is when your brother sins against you. It's personal offenses. It doesn't apply, for example, to false teaching. Because false teaching can with, uh, mislead a whole bunch of people, and it has to be corrected immediately, not, not in a step-by-step fashion. You see, example, in Galatians 2.11 to 14, Peter, Peter came to Antioch, and he was teaching falsely, at least by deed, if not by word. 
And Paul instantly confronted him publicly and in front of everybody, because this was not a personal matter. The people being misled about the true gospel has to be corrected instantly. So that's crucial. And even church leaders, church leaders are not above discipline. And I think that's a big problem our churches today. There have been scandals, huge scandals, in many of the mega churches in the United States. And in so many of the cases, you can trace back to where something was going wrong and the church leadership refused to confront him because, hey, he's the big star. There's this loyalty to him to the point where we forget that nobody's perfect. And they refused to confront him. And so the, the evil just grew and grew and grew until it couldn't be stopped anymore. So the Bible says leaders are not immune to this. Now, you should choose leaders properly. Standards are there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and in Titus chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. This is the biblical standards for church leadership. And I can tell you, I've gone to many, many, many interviews for pastoral positions in my time and i've never once seen a church that actually opened the bible to those passages and said say let's see how you match up to this somehow where did you get your mdf from and, and things like that if they're picked correctly then you should be very slow to receive an accusation against them because they've already proven themselves to be good people they've been rigorously tested do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses okay? But if the facts are there, you do need to rebuke them, and you need to rebuke them publicly. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all. They're church leaders, because they're in that higher position, and people look up to them. If they're falling into this kind of sin, teaching a false thing, they have to be corrected in the presence of everybody. So those who had previously been misled by them will not be misled by them. Another thing that comes out of this, two extremes to avoid when you're judging. Verse 22, it says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. And the problem here is acting precipitously, you know, hearing some bad thing and then just jumping right into judge. Maybe you haven't gotten all the facts. Maybe you haven't gotten the whole story. That happens sometimes. So you don't lay hands on anyone hastily. You don't judge. You don't rebuke publicly. Right away, you need to do your due diligence to make sure you're judging with righteous judgment. Okay? So you don't act too quickly. But on the flip side, you don't want to act too slowly either. Because if evil's going on and you're not doing anything about it, you become a partaker of it. You are sharing in it. So the two extremes, acting too quickly or not acting at all. So we need to judge, and, but we do need to do it right. Notice the good king, Yehoshaphat. Ironically means God is my judge. Back in the ninth century BC, as king, he was instructing the men that he was appointing as judges over Israel. And he says to them, he said judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for men, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. So he's warning them. You can't do just whatever you want. You're not a philosopher king who gets to decide how whatever seems good to you. The Lord is there. When you're making a judgment, he's watching what you're doing. Now, therefore, says Joshua, I'd let the fear of the Lord be upon you. You would better worry about doing the wrong thing. 
Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality nor taking of bribes. And he finishes the instructions in verse 11b. He says, behave courageously and the Lord will be with the good. Behave courageously. You know what? Judging takes courage these days. It may be extra hard these days to come and say, you know what? That's wrong. And why is that? Well, (laughs) we're back to the fact that this is the virtue of today. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't you dare. Don't judge me. And we're supposed to say, I'm not judging you. When in fact, sometimes we have to judge. Well, that's you. You know, this very only God can judge me. But unfortunately, there's a translation of that. And the actual translation is shut up so I can sit in peace. That's the unfortunate reality. Society has, has gone as don't judge me, Ruth, because they want to do things that are wrong. And they don't want to be told or reminded that it's wrong. Jesus outlined this very succinctly in John chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That might be the number one reason keeping people away from Jesus. It's not the fact that, oh, the church is mean, the church did bad things to us, the church are hypocritical. They know they'll have to give up their evil. And they don't want to do that. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. It's really reason they don't want to be judged. And more and more as society moves in that direction, the more they, they actually don't care about the light because, hey, we're, we're proud of our evil. Psalm 12 verse 8 says, the wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. They no longer do these things with shame. Actually, celebrate it. Exalt it. Look at how wonderful this, this immorality is. They want to continue doing them without being judged, without being bothered about it. They want to be told that this is fine. This is good. You can do it. But it will not work forever, folks. <laughs> it will not work forever because as the Bible tells us, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And again, in 2 Peter 3, 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. You can shout down people all you want. You can shout down the Christians, you can scream, don't judge me, but sooner or later, judgment will come. And it will come for Christians, too. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, tells us, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, for Christians, this is not a judgment between heaven and hell. Heaven is ours, free gift through faith. But what we did for Christ in this life will be judged. If we don't care about our standards and and we live as nasty as we want to be, there will be a price to pay for that. And if that's the case for Christians, wow, what's going to be the case for unbelievers? How much more for unbelievers? For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's a scary thing to think about, folks. 
So wouldn't it really be better? Instead of playing along with the world, don't judge me. I'm not judging. Wouldn't it be better to announce the judgment of God, the coming judgment of God, the coming wrath of God now so that they escape, they can escape the judgment of God for eternity? In other words, isn't it better to judge that you be not judged? Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.